0: Welcome to Did You Know, a podcast dedicated to the untold stories of the black and ethnic minority executives who have been trailblazers in the UK music business. I'm Adrian Sykes, and I've spent over three decades in the music business, working with record companies, as well as award-winning artists and managers. There is still a long way to go, but when it comes to representation... The music industry I started in is very different to the one that exists today. That's why we're spending season one of Did You Know focusing on the pioneers, the ones who had to walk so that others could run. When we started to look at guests, it was a unanimous decision to kick off things with Darkest Beast OBE, President and CEO of Island Records. Darkus has built an outstanding career in the business. And though he had to learn some very tough lessons along the way, I think he was always destined for greatness. With all my guests, I'm keen to know why it had to be the music business above all else. Here's what Darkus had to say. I loved music and um, I
1: wasn't smart enough to go to university. I mean, most people will tell you how they got into music when they were growing up. It was probably via their mum or their dad's record collection, which they had a serious record collection. From a very young age, I was immersed in music and I was immersed in politics. My mum and dad would tell me I was always bright, but, but I wasn't bright enough to make it to university. So I remember the day I left school, my mum said, there's no way you're going to be sitting around the house without a job. So you're going to go out and find a paid job, no matter what it is, till you figure out what it is you want to do that you love. And in the first instance, I went out and I got a job in a hair, in a hair salon and was sweeping hair.
0: Clearly, you grew up in a household with two amazing black activists in your dad, Darkest house, one of the great black Britons of the 20th century, and mum as well. How did their music and that attitude shape your ongoing love of music as you grew up? growing up with the mum and dad who were activists
1: and growing up in the struggle, lyrics and music had a, a, had a profound effect on me and it, was, and it was music of protest, you know. So from an early age, a seven-year-old should be listening to Top 40 and maybe not to Bob Marley and Linton Crazy Johnson and Big Youth and Sparrow and Arrow and all the Soca and reggae that I was listening to. So I was immersed early on and it probably was going to play out some, somehow, some way even though I had some um, mad idea that I was going to stay on at school and go to university and become a PE teacher because I was very good at athletics. I was a runner. But, um, but as I said before, I wasn't smart enough. So music at some point was going to be my, um, my destiny.
0: So you get to the end of schooling. You, by your own words, decide that you're not cut out for university and mum sends you out to kind of get your first job, which is in a hairdressing salon. Tell us what happened from that point going forward, because I believe that's the kind of one, the seminal moment that that changed you from being a man that cut hair or potentially became a, a hairdresser to the stars to becoming one of the great music executives of the 20th and 21st century.
1: I think it was a key time for me because I was 16 and yeah, they let people leave school at 16. <laughs> I had to figure out where my place was, In the world, and that was going to take a while. But I ended up working in this salon in Kensington Church Street, which was a very posh, white, middle to upper class salon. And um, it was mainly older women with blue rinses that I would have never come across in my world. So it kind of put me in this world where I had to communicate different and it was no longer hanging out with my mates doing crazy stuff. I was now working in it. And one of the things when I used to come to, to work in the morning was I wasn't allowed to greet the client or answer the phone because my telephone manner or my my, my speaking voice wasn't good enough. And at that point, I, I, I what became more important to me was not cutting hair, learning to cut hair. It was to communicate I wanted to I wanted to pick up that phone I wanted to take appointments I wanted them I wanted to do the stuff that they said I couldn't do and I learned how to communicate with a different demographic of people that I would have never come across and had to speak, speak clearly had to use my words had to know how to treat a client so it kind of gave me the skills of communication which was which is probably the one thing a from everything else that you learn as you go was the, the biggest skill that um, stood me in good stead
0: so you think that moment of you actually taking a job in in a place that you really never ever thought you were gonna land in or be a career was actually the point where it shaped and defined what you were to become later on but also give you the skills that allowed you to kind of take into the next stage of your career Everybody thinks
1: that you're going to leave school and find this career that you want to do. I mean, apart from those kids, those smart kids that go, I want to be a physicist or I want to be a scientist or I want to be an astronaut. Those kids that actually know what they want to do. But the the main percentage of us, especially young black boys and black girls at that time, when the careers officer came in, they weren't giving you they weren't giving you much choice. So, you know, I had to figure out what work ethic meant and I had to figure out what. I didn't want to do, but you had to do it so that when I came home over every Friday night, I could contribute to my rent, to my mum, to give my mum, however much it was, some rent money. I understood from an early age that earning money didn't mean that you had to enjoy your job. You just had to kind of just have a work ethic about yourself.
0: So you're in the salon, you're trying to answer phones, trying to talk to clients. At what moment is that blue light moment where you meet the person that actually introduces you to the music business and offers you the opportunity or, te- or tells you about this great world out there that you only know through the records you've played and touched and, and fallen in love with, and th- that you begin to believe that there's a possibility of a career. And who was that person? About a, a year
1: later, I, I moved jobs uptown to the fashionable Covent Garden so now I was kind of working in a salon that was fashion and culture was central to it. It wasn't about the Blue Rinse Brigade. I was working up in, in um, Seven Dials, Monmouth Street, Covent Garden. It was the center of fashion hair. It was a great place to be. And so then you met real people in the creative industries, people in the music business. And I remember I met um, a couple of a and people, one in particular, because he was a black man, was Lincoln Elias. And, and another one was Gordon Charlton. Um, and both guys at the time were at the top of their career. You know, Lincoln had, the, had Terrence Trent Derby and went on to sign Desiree and Jamariquai. And Gordon Charlton had signed that big boy band called Bross. I remember being introduced to them and asking them what they did. And they said, we're A&R men. And I was like, what's that? And, and that's when I, I got the curtain pulled back on what that... that black disc that you ended up going to the record shop and buying I started to pull back the curtain called vinyl the 12 inch or the 7 inch it was put it was pulling back the curtain on that process and how that process started and that's when I was like I'm not staying in hairdressing I
0: want to be in music so you meet Gordon Charlton you meet Lincoln Alliance both I mean legendary names in, in the business from back in the day how do you then make the the transition to kind of learning about a business to being a part of it? What you know, where do you go next? Where did you go next from there? What well, I then kind
1: of, kind of came into my vocabulary was networking. The more people that I seemed to meet, was the bigger picture got filled in. And I met managers. I met more A and R people. I met Julian Palmer, who became my boss, who's at Sony now, signed Rag and Bone Man, and people like that became. I became friends with not only networking, um, friends, but proper friends. And one day I went into, I went to visit, I was, I was, I was on a day off hairdressing and I went to visit, um, Julian at Island records to go and blag some records. There was a job going, a kid was just about to leave the promotions department an assistant was just about to leave and timing was everything. And so Julian, sent me to go and see the head of promotions, who gave me, three days later, gave me an interview. And three days later, after that, um, I had a job in the music industry. That was after I had my very first meeting with you, Adrian, which for me is historical because you were the very first person that interviewed me. I remember going to the office. And um, where was the MCA offices then? It was, uh, it was on Brewer Street. Um, yeah, and it's like I remember it well. Yeah, you took me to lunch. You told me all the right things, but didn't give me a job. Didn't have the space, but the advice was was beautiful. And to kind of be sitting here having this conversation with you 30-odd years later is amazing. I think it's a testament to both of us.
0: Blessings for you for saying that. What I was going to say was it was that one of the great regrets that I didn't have the space to kind of employ you at the time because I always remember this kid who was full of enthusiasm, great knowledge, You'd come recommended because obviously you, Julian, and I share a, a history going back. So you get into Island Records. You finally you finally got that big break. What was the early advice that you got that was useful to you? I think I learned from experience rather than advice early
1: on. I had no real-time mentor at the time. I had friends, and we were all having a good time, but... Um, you can only learn by mistakes and failures. And I was, I was able to make a lot of those, a few of those early on.
0: Are you prepared to share some of your early lessons or an early lesson? Ignorance and arrogance can take
1: you out um, as quickly as you came in. Um, because I had a network of good friends that were successful in the music industry and the way that some people would talk about me and my personality and my energy you kind of start believing all of it. And when you've only been around six to eight months, but you're talking like you've been around a couple of years, you're going to get your neck taken off or you're going to take yourself out. And there was this band I wanted to sign and Julian wouldn't let me sign the act. I hadn't even been a scout for a long time, had no idea how to make records. I just had this arrogance. And um, and that arrogance, um, walked. I walked myself out of the building because... Julian said I couldn't sign the act. And I said, well, if I can't sign the act, I might as well not be here. And the managing director at the time heard that comment and he came downstairs and he said, am I hearing right? And I was like, yeah, if he doesn't let me sign it, I might as well leave now. And I remember he opened the door (laughs) and I walked out (laughs) and and I walked out and I, my, my ego just couldn't allow me to hush my mouth. And um, I, I literally, I remember it was a summer's day and I'd walked myself out and I remember looking around, going, standing at the top of the street going, I've just got myself fired. Not even fired, I just walked myself out of a job. And,
0: and, and I promised that I would never, ever allow that to happen again. So you've made a stand. What's next for you? You've walked out of Ireland. What did you think the future held for you once you'd left? Did you think that was the end of your, what was at that time probably a short career in the music business? Or was there something else on the horizon that you thought that you could walk into? I was lucky, but you make your own luck. And my
1: network um, paid off. And probably a week or two later, I had a job, an independent label called Big Life Records, working for the legendary Jazz Summers, who's now since passed away the past four or five years. He, he had managed people like Wham, Lisa Stansfield, Yaz, um, and he also had a record label, a very successful independent record label. Um, and we were the, the UK distributors for um, De La Soul and Naughty by Nature. And um, so it was, it was quite an exciting time. And Jazz and Tim Parry, who was his partner, they were musicians, Uh, managers, A&R men. They taught me the record-making process. They taught me to what it was to live in a studio and what it was to make records, what it was to care about the lyric, the first line of the first verse, the hook, where the vocal should be in the mix, spending time in the studio and seeing how the engineer, the sound engineer would mic up the live room, mic up the drum kits. And then you'd have to go and find the musicians for the sessions I mean, now people make records on their MacBook Pro, right? But back then, you really had to know the process. So working for Jazz and Tim, I learned how to make records and become an A&R man.
0: So how crucial do you think that process was before you left there and then went back to your home of now? that has been like your home for over two decades, Ireland Records. Well, it taught me that success
1: does not come quick, and it prepared me for that moment when I went back to Ireland um, in 94. It really prepared me. I knew how to make records. I hadn't had a hit yet. I'd been in and around hits and kind of had been involved somehow. I, I, I loved getting the remixes done of the records we, we were putting out. I'd kind of been in and around the process, uh, but hadn't had a hit yet. And even though I was an AR man, I didn't really feel like an A&R person. Even though that was in my title, I really had, didn't feel like that. And it was at what point do you really feel
0: like an A&R person? So the darkest that walked out was one person. What, what was the darkest to walk back into Ireland as a person like? What was his ambition? What, what were you looking to achieve? How did you feel that you, you, you'd be a different person, executive, within that new structure second time around? I wanted success. I wanted career.
1: I knew it was the music business. There's a high turnover of people would come and go. You come in thinking you're this and you get found out. And the music business is a place that you can get found out pretty pretty quickly. So I knew that I wanted to go long. I knew I wanted a career. Um, I knew that my ego nearly got me taken out before. So it was always don't pop your head over the parapet too soon. You know, um, hold your position, keep your powder dry, see see what people are doing, see how they're moving and have a hit and break an act because that's what, that's what A&R people are supposed to do. Ultimately, yeah, you're supposed to sign an act. Yeah, you want culture, but you've got to have success as an A&R person. So I kind of knew early on that I was, the mission was never to get fired, but, um, do, good, do good things um, be indispensable, be invaluable, be energy, and people would want you around.
0: Let's talk about that moment from walking back into crystallising all the things that you want to be, all the ambition you have. Let's talk about the acts that you signed, because there's no question, darkest that, you know, as a career, it's been a stellar one. So... Talk us through some of the early acts that led into the point where your career went to the next phase and allowed you to go to the next phase. And you know, what are your some of your proudest moments as you walk through your time at Ireland?
1: I always think about where what where I would have been if I was at another label that wasn't Ireland, that allowed creativity on a major level and, and allowed and backed the artists and the and their craft, no matter how mad it looked. Um so working at Ireland let me experiment and allowed me to sign music that I was passionate about, which at the time was hip-hop, British hip-hop. And again, because I'm um, the household I was brought up in, you know, I would sign these jazz soul acts and I would sign these hip-hop acts. I remember signing this kid called Silent Eclipse, who was a black radical and part of the nation of Islam and <laughs> and had a dislike for white people. But it was so it was so radical and so in your face. And I was allowed to do it. Ireland allowed me to kind of be comfortable in my skin and allowed me to sign stuff that I was passionate about that resonated more in terms of culture than the economics of success. So Ireland allowed me to find out what I stood for and help shape that. So when success came for me with acts, it was kind of those acts that were easily darker signing. Or the kind of act that I would sign, that you kind of start a little bit on the left and bring it to try and bring it to mainstream.
0: I remember working at Ireland, and it was something that always, always resonated for me. Every time I opened the door, was just walking through the building and feeling the sense of responsibility you had, but also the fact that you could feel the music coming off the walls, and you know there'd be great artists' covers and. Marley would be smiling down on you. It might be Toots, or it could be a Fourth and Broadway release. How much do you think that that sense of breadth allowed you to be experimental in the, what you signed, and gave you license to be to be the A and I man you are? Given the fact, obviously, that you you have that great sense of social and political history, which clearly is very much a part of Ireland culture trickles down not
1: only from the top, but also from the people that are in and around you. And the people at the top and the people in and around me at Ireland all came to work for the same thing. We loved music. Yes, it was about the success and, and about having a hit, but we really loved what we did and we really loved each other. And, you know, you know the people that worked at Ireland, I, I always said, let's build a culture where people want to come and never want to leave. Um, including including the artists, and and that's why career was so important not only for the artists but for the people that worked there. And I always said that we we have to be a broad church, not even from diversity from the staff, but diversity on the roster. And and that was and that's the blueprint that Chris left behind for whoever ran the company. It's just whether they were stupid enough stupid enough to divert from that blueprint.
0: Let's talk about some of those great signers, and you know, you should name them because I think they're names that people should know that are associated with you. So it'd be really good for you to kind of name the ones that that really are a testament to darkest beast and yeah, you know, any success story.
1: At that time, I was working at the on the Fourth and Broadway. I don't know if I mentioned that, but I was working for the Fourth and Broadway label, um, which was the label that carried the hip hop, the black music, and um, the broad umbrella of dance music. And I wanted I, I wanted more. You know, a lot of the a lot of our acts that were on that label would sell out the subterranean and sell out Jazz Cafe and those kind of venues. I wanted to sell out Wembley. And how was I gonna do that? With what acts? As a black AR man, how was I gonna do that? UK black acts, they were successful and sometimes having crossover moments, but from a life point of view, they weren't selling out Wembley or selling internationally. And that's what I, you know, that's what success looked like for me. I knew I My next couple of signings had to be strategic. During that period of time, I signed a young black kid called Tayo Cruz and a girl group that had been dropped by London called the Sugar Babes and a jazz artist called Amy Winehouse. Within that trinity of signings over the the next three years, three or four, five, six years actually, Sugar Babes became the biggest girl group in the UK. And every record and every album I made with them went to number one. So I knew what repetition was. I knew what, how to repeat success with the Sugar Babes. Every new album was a number one. Every single was, we put out was a number one. We sold triple platinum every time. So I, I knew what success really looked like. And again, I, th- th- this is not all by myself. There's teams of people in and around you. I want, I want that always to be crystal clear. You're always in a team of people. And then I made a first album with Tayo, which was um, more R&B, soul-based. And I signed Amy and we made Frank. So I had I had th- this trinity of things going on. And over the next couple of years, Tayo followed up his album with um, his second album that had Dynamite. Two songs, Dynamite, Break Your Heart, that became Global Smashes, number one in America, The biggest and fastest number one behind George Michael, Sugar Babes. I remember Sugar Babes were having a number one single while Amy was having a number one album. So there was a period of time that I was the dog's bollocks, you would say. And I knew how I had got there. I'd figured it out. We make our own luck, but it wasn't by accident that I was having this success.
0: So you've had the highs. And clearly that leads you to a point where you become appointed co-president, which is an amazing achievement for a black man in our industry. But there's a period that leads up to that darkness where there are always, with the highs comes lows. And it's the challenges that you faced along the way that help you get to where you are. But what are some of those challenges that you kind of faced as a person of minority, a person of color? in the business as as you went through, some of the things that you came up against that helped also shape your journey? It's crazy because if you would have
1: known me back then, you would have thought I was a very confident person. I was very good at pretending I was confident. I was very good at showing ambition, but I was wary that there wasn't many Black people that had been successful in the music business. And what's beautiful to see now, young Black brothers and sisters, that have this innate ambition and they want it and and they have a swagger and they really believe it. But back when I was coming through, it was very much a white man's world that you had to navigate. In the main, in terms of how you were perceived coming through, did people see a career trajectory for you? Did they see you as a future leader? I don't think they saw me as a future leader. I think that I was good at what I did and I knew not to rock the boat and when you come across those micro, they call microaggressions or those kind of crazy questions that people ask you about the way you speak or the slang you use or um, that you once had an afro and what did your hair feel like? You know, all, those kind of, that, that, all that kind of crazy stuff, that stuff that, you know, people didn't understand that. You know, your journey to work could be a stressful one, just getting up in the morning, opening your eyes, being a black man and getting on the train and no one wanted to sit next to you or standing on a pack train and someone pulling their purse close to you. And then you got into the office and then you were having to deal in with um, certain perceptions and not wanting to, to be that uh, intimidating, aggressive, angry black man. So on a daily, as we come to work, go for our day trying to dodge those raindrops. You had to keep your powder dry and going back to walking myself out of the building or a job in certain situations, um, you, as a black man, as a black woman, you had to dodge the raindrops.
0: So in your initial journey where you've started the business and you're looking around and there aren't as many black faces that you would expect to see in a business that is multicultural, that makes money from black music. Did you sense a sense of being there for just because you were a black man or that they really wanted you for your talent, because there's always an argument about tokenism and whether it's a real, it's a reality or whether it's a, uh, an imagined state or, or perception in people's minds. Was that something that ever crossed your mind? Again, it's a double-edged sword because I used to, you used to, you, you could sit there and
1: kind of see people getting plays in terms of promotions or titles before you. And I knew that I was, Good, and I was having all of this success, but there were other people that had less success than me that were that were moving at a greater pace through whatever company that they were working in, or whether someone decided to bring someone in over me while I was having success. I'd like to think now it can happen at different places, but when it happened with me, and I got the tap on the shoulder to co-run the label, it was it was evident that I had the experience and the success that I. should be able to have a run at leadership. And to David Joseph's testament, um, who's the UK chairman of Universal Music, he made me the first black, I was co-president, but first black president of a major label. So for that, I thank him.
0: So as the first black president of, of a major label, how much responsibility do you feel walking in day in, day out to ensure that you hold up The values of yourself, first and foremost, as a person, but also as a person of colour, knowing what it could potentially mean for the people behind you. you. Do you feel that weight of responsibility? Is this something that you think about? As you point out, you first don't let yourself down. And then
1: you don't want to create a scenario where there's no one after you. Uh, that you haven't just held the door open, you've kicked the door off the hinges for other people and a period of time that wasn't a fleeting moment because words like legacy and career are important to me because of of, of how I was brought up and, and cut from what cloth I was cut. And again, goes back to what I was saying about what do you stand for when you come to work more than just trying to have a hit and hit the number, What are you doing as a human being in your skin? And what's the give back component? Because music you can take, 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 take. But when when you're lying in bed at night and you're looking at the ceiling, how comfortable are you with yourself? And that's not for everybody. But I had a responsibility to a culture, a roster of artists and a team of of employees. So all of that stuff was really um, weighed on me but not
0: as a burden, but as an inspiration. And do you feel that that's more acute because of your family history, or is that just you as a person?
1: I, I'd like to think I'm a good person, just at, just at the core, but I was forged in the, in, in the fire of love and protest.
0: There's been a sea change this year, darkest with clearly the killing of George Floyd, bringing a lot of attention through Black Lives Matter great initiatives with many labels pledging to change equality throughout and allowing a greater representation of, of, of Black um, BAME employees around the decision-making table. First of all, do you think that will happen? How will it happen? When will it happen? And do you think that the initiatives that the major labels have adopted are the right ways of solving the problem that we currently face? It's important to realise, you know, for
1: me, you know, my journey into a decision-maker and a leader took a while. Some people will go, well, it took a while because you've been successful and maybe if it was a white counterpart, they would have got there faster. And, and also, you know, I started off in 4th and Broadway, which was primarily a black music label, but didn't get trapped there. and found my way through success to leadership. And again, it might have taken me a while to get there via my white counterpart. But in saying that, when I got the job of leadership, I kind of knew what to do or not to do to, and learn what to do because it had taken me a while and because I, had to, because I had to keep my powder dry, because I had to have a lot more success and a lot more failures, that when I finally got the position and when I finally got there, I knew what it was to keep it. And to go long and to have a career, did it take me a bit longer than my white counterpart? Maybe. But in saying that, I've been around longer than a lot of my white counterparts that did maybe get a jump on me. So I, it's important that what, what you ask for or what you crave for, that when you get it, you know what to do with it, that you don't, don't, you don't shout for it, then get it, then lose it. So, you know, that route to leadership for me was the highs and the lows, and I cut my teeth, and I chipped my teeth, and I and I had to bite my tongue, and I've had more failures than I've had successes, and I had to fight that scenario when someone got brought over me, and did I think that that was going to stop my, my 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 rise within the company? Not everybody's a leader, and leaders aren't just made; they're forged. So, what are you asking for, and when you get it, can you handle it? And and for me, when I got to the opportunity to, to uh, run Ireland, UK, US, sorry. And I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, but um, when I got to the US and I was um, reorganising the company, there was a young black man, successful A&R kid. I remember thinking, I could easily bring someone ahead of this kid, over this kid. But what does giving him a run at it look like? And how can I mentor him and how can I advise him to your earlier questions, Adrian? And I made the decision to promote him as, a, as the head of A and R. And there were, you know, and, and there's not many black A and R people that are head uh, major labels in the U.S. So that decision I took was born out of how long it took me to get where I did. Um, could I have got there a bit quicker if I had a mentor, someone that um, passionately cared about what I was doing. So my experiences on the come up led me to make decisions when I ran the company about what does diversity and giving people a play at the label. So um,
0: yeah, it's kind of some full, full
1: circle stuff there.
0: But then how does that translate into the wider initiatives that not just darker is making within Ireland, but Universal are the saying they want to attain or Sony or Warners as a group. I mean, there's clearly a need for more voices around, more black voices, more female voices around the table so that they can have influence on policy. How do you think that will play out? And do you think that initiative and that the, the, the statements that have been made are real statements, or do you think that is just a response to what's happening and and, and and window dressing. Do you see real light at the end of the tunnel for what for what the future holds for black executives as we go forward? I,
1: I do, because now people's feet are, are being held to the fire. You have a generation of young people that have, that have, have grown up woke and, and, and they're at the tipping point and they demand more from the world and, and, and more from people and more from businesses. It's a shame... That, um, that stuff has to happen in the world for people at the co- top of the companies to kind of look down and feel embarrassed that their company isn't well represented in, in the gender split or diversity. And so people's feet are being held to the fire. And internally, we have task forces that talk about um, not only external reach, re- reach out and give back, but what does internal change look like? And this isn't about kind of rushing people into positions this is about giving people the trajectory and a guidebook and the resources to leadership and to tap people on the shoulder early on in their career and kind of say, we're going to groom you for leadership. And have leadership programs that in five or 10 years, you have people in positions of, of when people say power, I call it decision making, you know, um Power is a word that wraps up many things. But for me, it's about being able to make decisions that change the direction of a company, the direction of a of career, the direction of culture. And it shouldn't be one decision maker. You, you, you should have be able to have a group of leaders that decision make. Then you will see change on a major scale. You know, I mean, for, for, for this conversation, and, and I'm very, very proud of where I am, and I'm very proud of, of what's happening, but um, there's only one of me. There should be more of me.
0: So that, that so that just says there's still a lot to do. You occupy a rare space, Darkers, because you're an Englishman abroad. As Sting would say, you've seen exactly firsthand what's happened in the past few months in America, whilst keeping a very keen eye on what's gone on here and the protests and the movements and activism on both sides of the Atlantic and being very much across all of it. What have you made of it?
1: When I was growing up with mum and dad and them being, at them being activists and being in the Black Panthers and me going from a very young age, there's loads of pictures of me on demonstrations from five, six, seven. Um, I never really had to have the talk. My mum and dad never really sat me down and had the talk. I watched Roots from an early age. <laughs> I knew what people thought of us and knew where we came from. And I knew that my mum and dad were fighting for our rights and were very worried for me as a black boy every time I stepped out. And that was, you know, over 40, 45 years ago. And in, in and around that time, when I was first born, my my mother and father ended up in a very famous trial called the Mangrove Nine. There was a demonstration against the the the, the police who had systematically kept raiding this restaurant that was a which, which which was seen as a community space for Black West Indians, but they kept ra- raiding it and saying that there were drugs there and that the people thereof were, were of evil intent and and it was a den of iniquity so um they defended the mangrove, which was called, which the restaurant was called the mangrove, and um went on the demonstration and on the demonstration, the police snatched nine out of the crowd, and the nine involved my mum and dad, and that was fifty years ago. And the reason why I'm telling this story is because it was fifty years ago. And even that they they won a landmark case where my my, my father defended himself dark as hell and my mum um was defended by you know, McDonald, a white radical um QC at the time. They ended up against all odds. Also, my dad invoked the Magna Carta, which was everybody has a right to a jury of their peers. And, um, managed to get a couple of black people on the jury as well, which was unheard of. You cut to 50 years later and we still have issues. There's still people dying in police custody. There are still young men getting their head, head blown off by the police. Um, Alan Mark Duggan that triggered the, the, the Tottenham riots. And then, and then you see what's happening just a couple of months ago, um, where America was burning because of George Floyd. So as far as people think you've come and as far and, Yes, I can. I am a CEO of um, an international record company, but one of very few. While there's a couple of us that have got a head above the waterline, there's millions that still don't have the, their head below the waterline. So, 50 years ago, there was a a major fight that was won in the high courts at the, the Old Bailey, but we're still fighting now. So, as sad as it may be, the fight is never over. And and being in America, um, in the in the past. Um, six months is very, um, very raw, very raw because although there's a common ground, the in our skin, um, the journey's a, a lot different. I feel trauma here, but I felt, I've, in the last couple of months, I felt real trauma out there in the
0: black community. So, what would the great darkness how have made of what's going on now? What would he have thought? What would his words of advice be?
1: I just always go to the line when he did that famous BBC interview where they tried to make a fool of him and he said to them, I can't remember the saying, don't disrespect this old West Indian Negro. The lady interviewing him, who hadn't even done her research, asked dad if he had ever rioted before. And basically he said, don't be disrespectful. And this is not a riot, it's a mass insurrection. And that's how I I remember my dad um, in a moment like that describing what white people describe, um, describing it as riots. My dad would call it the, um, a mass insurrection.
0: As we draw to a close at the end of this interview, let's do some real quickfire questions. Early mentors on pieces of advice that you found helpful? I'm going to be a
1: bit cheesy because you were the first person I'd ever sat down with in an interview as a black man with a young black boy outside obvious and more recent and my dad and my mum I if I'm if I'm talking about my journey through the music industry and I and I thought about this I've got I've got to go back to when I sat down first with you as a black man to a a younger black man coming through and that and that and that 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 was I ain't got a job for you but I have patience (laughs) and love and love um proudest moment of your career there's many and um And in the moment you feel it's the proudest moment, I think it was getting the chance and the opportunity, um, to run the North American operations of, of Island US, Island Records, sorry, because everything, everything has led up to that moment. Everything was a step in that direction or a step up in that direction. Um, with my, with, with whether it's the experience. Whether it was the failures and whether it was the successes, put me in a situation where I could go and run an American company. So I've got to, going to run an island in the US has got to be thus far one of my proudest moments.
0: What's been the toughest moments or the biggest challenges that you've had, or the, the, some of the more difficult moments that you've you've had to overcome?
1: The toughest moments in my job is having. One is is failure, that's an obvious one. And two is how do you ride out that failure until you turn the corner of success again? And then again, and then people will ask me, what's success and how do you measure success? I sometimes measure success just getting up in the morning and opening your eyes. Success is putting out records, success is having culture, success is having economic success. But as I always tell people, a lot of that can be fleeting. What does career look like? And I think the toughest, thing, the toughest thing for me has been to keep in the game for so long.
0: Your biggest regret?
1: I don't have any regrets, not anymore. I've seen too much and come too far to have any regrets, and I'm not jealous of anyone. And, and maybe that's because if you would have asked me this question maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I would have had a regret that I didn't sign that act or that song wasn't a hit or I didn't employ that person or I let that person go. But um, I think those are the learnings of life, and I'm, and I'm 50 now. Um, so to be having regrets um, would be to still be carrying some bitterness around. So I have
0: no regrets. And who do you find inspirational, or who has been inspirational and had that influence on, on you? I've got to say
1: now, in terms of where young people are, young people of colour and in the last 10 or 15, 10 years there's a generation of kids that are as powerfully woke as they were in the 50s and 60s and I'd like to think my mum and dad were part of their journey because now I'm starting to hear their names mentioned um, in people's posts, especially around Black History Month. My dad's name gets mentioned. My mum's name's been mentioned. There's a famous picture of my mum's holding a pig's head on a on a on a demonstration, and and that's not, I'm starting to see that more and more. Um, so the fact that my parents are, had effect on UK black history has to be very profound for me.
0: What are your remaining ambitions?
1: My main ambition now, probably, and and again, it's how I view it, is to do. More stuff that matters.
0: So, when you say that, are you' talking more on a, from a cultural perspective on, on the on the music that you sign, the artists that you sign, or how you run the label. I mean, you'd want to expand on that
1: in all areas of my life. Like I say, you know, and it depends what you know, especially running the record company. What you know, it's about having hits, but I think it's more than that. You know, I think Ireland is more than that. I think I'm more than that. And I think we live in a world now where even more so we have a responsibility to give back and to help build and not to drain, but to fulfil. And, and whether that's from my role as a CEO in a record company or whether that's my role as a, as a human being, I think the activism side of me is going to come out more.
0: And finally, part of what we're trying to do on Did You Know is to inspire the next generation give them ambition but also give them hope and also the opportunity to be mentored by an executive like yourself so what piece of advice would you give to someone just starting out or who wants to get to have a career in the music business
1: don't let instagram twitter or snapchat be your lens of which you where you view life from Don't let that skew the reality of the journey of what it is to have a job and a career. There's a generation that that look through that lens and think that people get it now and they want it now. And if they don't get it now, then they move on to the next. So think long term, think career. You know, if you think um, you're a veteran at five years, then you're using wrong time measurement and five years compared to how long we've been doing it. Adrian, myself and you is but a drop in the ocean. It's a blink of an eye. You know, we've been doing this nearly 30, 35 years, 40, 40 years, so that's what a career looks like. And, and it can go really quickly. So be mindful and 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 think long and think career.
0: Darkest Beast OBE, President, CEO, Island Records. Thank you for being a part of oh. Did You Know? bless you sir
1: humbled for being invited on
0: I'm Adrian Sykes and thanks for listening to Did You Know Pioneers a Downstreet production podcast our thanks to Darkest Beast OB for sharing his stories and to my partner in crime and true pioneer Danny Dean thanks also to Sean Springer and our producer Cass Denton our theme music is composed by 320 honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW and the WX team lighting the Did You Know fires across socials you'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast keep listening to the series to find out more Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts and look out for our next episode with since 93 co-president and top AR man Glenn Akins you're not going to want to miss that one